And it's the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God that we're here today to worship, believing with all of our hearts that God and God alone is the source of our strength, He's the source of our life, but He's also the source of love that we're going to talk about in just a few moments. But before we do that, we want to take a time to pray for some people in our church who are hurting, some people who are going through difficult times. We want to be praying for David Espenshade, Pauline Prilliman, and pray for Ralph Puckett and Joyce Thompson, Margaret Yelvington. Be praying for Kim Westover, having a difficult time right now, and for uh, Richard Steinke and Jason Langan and Jackson Steepleton. And pray for the family of Dorothy Stinnett, who passed away this week. Also for the family of Bill Hutchinson. And then the family of Francis Jones, who's been part of our church from day one. We certainly want to remember these families in our prayer. Let's go to the Lord today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we stand here and we are overwhelmed. We are humbled that you could love us so very much that you gave your only son, Jesus, for us. It doesn't really make sense. Our minds really can't grab a hold of that idea, that concept, that the God of the universe wants to actually be able to call us his own. But God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your son who, who died and who rose again. We thank you that through believing in him that we can find salvation. And God, I pray that today as we open your word that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our minds to, Lord, a new word from you today, that we would hear from you and Lord, that we would see today, before we walk out of this place, God, that we would see something from your word that changes us, not just for today, not just for this hour, but for the rest of our lives. Lord, today we've got a lot of people hurting, we've got a lot of people sick, a lot of people who have loved ones who've graduated to heaven. We pray that you would bless them and encourage them, give to them that, that perfect peace that comes from Philippians chapter 4, the peace that doesn't make sense. When life is seemingly in shambles, God, that you can give us the kind of peace that we could never expect. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that. Lord, do that for the families we've mentioned, doing it for more, Lord, for those that, that are going through difficult times. But also, God, we pray for that peace for all of us, whatever it is that we might be facing today. And God, if there's somebody here today that has never come to that place where they've heard and recognized and, and accepted and believed in the gift of your son, Jesus, I pray that during this hour, in this moment, God, that they would hear the truth of the gospel and that this would be the day that they call on your name and that they're saved. And God, will give you the praise. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Last week, we started walking through a a, uh, the passage there that we're going to go back into in a few moments. We're going to read that passage again because we've been talking about God's definition of love. I'm talking about the picture of love according to God's word and God's will. Now, we know we live in a world today where love is a word that's tossed around, it's thrown out at every turn. We hear it in lots of different situations. We hear it in lots of different con contexts. We hear it from Hollywood and their definition of love. But we want to understand, like, what does God mean when he says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And what does God mean when he says to love your neighbor as yourself? What does he mean when he says to love even your enemies? Because I can guarantee you that God does not want us to love others the way Hollywood says to love others. In fact, when you look in God's word, there are about, in the Greek, there's four different words for love. 
one, and you know these, you've probably heard these before if you've spent any time at all in church in your life, you've heard these statements. There's the, the word eros, which literally means erotic love. It's Hollywood's version of love. The kind of love that's it's all about me. What can I get from this relationship? What can I get from this person? What uh, satisfaction, what joy, what, what happiness am I going to find? And it's all about what I can get. That's Hollywood's definition of love. And that's why when difficult times arrive in Hollywood's view of love, that people will drop and walk away. That they will move, remove themselves from those relationships because it no longer gives to them what they are seeking, what they want. Now, there's another word, phileo, which is the idea of brotherly love. It's where we get the name for one of our larger cities in America, Philadelphia. I don't know if you've spent any time in Philadelphia. I'm not sure that word fits in some context, but still, it's the idea of brotherly love, of people who get along, who just enjoy their time together. And and it's the idea, man, I want to help that person. They want to help me. We we get along. We enjoy. That is what most of us in this room, uh, hopefully all of us in this room, have towards one another. That we just love one another from that context. But that, too, is not God's definition of love. You see, God's definition of love comes from the word agape. Agape, which literally means it's all about the other person. That I'm willing to give of myself completely because I love that person that much. Now listen, when you talk about God's definition of love, that's the picture of that love because that's exactly what God did for you and me. When we talk about the idea of God's sacrifice, of giving His only Son, Jesus, who came to this earth and who died on the cross, who paid for our sins on the cross, who died, who was buried, and who rose again three days later for one reason and one reason only. This is the coolest thing that you will ever hear in the rest of your life. And if you've never heard it before, right here, get ready, okay? This is the coolest thing you will ever hear. God did all of that for you. God did that for you. Jesus got nothing out of it. There wasn't this uh, conversation or this debate going on in the mind of Jesus like, like what's in this for me? Like, like what can I get from this? I, I can guarantee you that when the Roman soldiers were beating him mercilessly and his back was bloodied because he was being beaten uh, so horrendously, I can guarantee you Jesus wasn't sitting there thinking, now, what am I going to get out of this again? I can guarantee you when they took that, that crown of thorns and pressed it into his, into his skull and, and the, the parts around his, his head began to bleed all over his face, the blood began to pour because of the, 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 the thorns that were literally that long. In my office right now, I've, I've got over there, someone made this for me. They actually went to Israel and they, they gathered together some of the thorns that, that are similar to, if not the same style that were used in the crown of thorns 2,000 years ago in Jesus. And I've got that in my, in my uh, office right now. Someone brought it and gave it to me as a gift. I'm not sure what they wanted me to do with it. It's sitting on a shelf. And that's where it's going to stay. Uh, I don't really want to like try it out. But I can guarantee you when they pressed it into his skull, Jesus didn't say, yeah, but you know, this is going to be worth it because of what I can get. When they nailed his hands to the cross, and they took those long spikes and nailed it through each of his wrists, And then they took that spike and nailed it through his feet. And they lifted that cross up and dropped it into the ground. And the flesh around those spikes began to pull. 
as he struggled to lift his body to take just one more breath. I can guarantee you Jesus wasn't saying, yeah, but, but in the end, man, there's going to be a real payback for me. Everything that was going through Jesus' mind during that time was this. This is not about me. It's for you. Amen. How beautiful is that? You talk about love? Man, that is the ultimate definition of love. And that's what Christ did. But not only is that what Christ did, that is what Christ expects from us. And so we've been walking through this passage, and I want to read again this passage to you today uh, in its entirety so that we can again be reminded of what exactly it is that God wants us to understand about love. Because again, think about this. Every single day we are bombarded by the world's view of love. They will tell us what love is. They will tell us how to act in love. They will tell us how to react in love. They will tell us how to walk away from love. We even have a court system that has given us a, a pathway so that can take place. That is the accepted. That's the norm. That's what the world accepts. It is not what God intends. So let's read this passage, beginning with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but if I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything that I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no records of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up and never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now, our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Listen to these words in verse 13. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, last week we walked through the first part of this passage. And we spent some time talking about how love is patient and love is kind. Love is not jealous and love is not rude. And, and we talked about all the things that love is not. We talked about how we are to act and how we're to respond and how we're not to be, if you remember this, that we don't have permission in the kingdom of God and in the context of God's definition of love to be a jerk. None of us has the right to be a Christian jerk. And I think all of us, if we walked around and like took a poll if we had, you know, fill, take out a card and fill out a name of somebody that you know that's a follower of Christ, but also is a jerk, I think all of us could come up with a name. And think, in fact, I think all of us could probably say, excuse me, I need more paper because I need to fill out more names because we could come up with those names. And here's the reason. It's because so many people today are buying into the culture's idea of how we're to act. God just simply says, no, 
God says, don't do that. This, this is how you act. Remember, he told us in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Matthew 5 and 6, love even your enemy. And here's how we do it. So last week we walked through that first part of the passage. I want to continue walking through the the passage here. It starts with the second part of verse 5 where it says this, love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. Now, let's spend some time talking about what that means. When you read this passage and it says, it does not demand its own way. The New King James Version says this, it does not seek its own. Basically, what we're saying is here, love in God's definition is not all about me. That love is not what I can get from it. We talked about that a few moments ago, that, that, that Greek word for love, eros, where it's like, what can I get? What satisfaction can I find? In fact, most of the songs that are out there in popular culture about love is all about like what I'm going to get, like what's in this for me. But yet God's word very clearly says this, that love does not demand its own way. And it means this, basically, that when you guys are married, right? Yeah, I I know you guys. I know you're, that wasn't a question. I knew that. You guys, I'm telling you, you guys are married. Did you know that? It's awesome. What it means for this dear couple is this is that each and every day that they walk through life, that his mission for the day is not to figure out how in their relationship everything's going to be about him today. And I'm not going to ask her if there's been any days like that, okay? But likewise for her, when she gets up in the morning, the vision, the mission for her during the day today, it's not about me, it's about him. Now you think about just that one simple context, you, that one simple statement, that if in every relationship that we had, in every friendship, and yes, even in every marriage, if everything that we thought about was what can I give to this relationship? How can I bless the person in this relationship? How can I make a positive impact on this person today? Can you imagine how that changes the dynamics of relationships in every part of your life? You go to work tomorrow, and that person that you happen to go to work tomorrow with that is that person at, at work that you just don't really get along with, and we think we all have some of those, Right? Now, I, I don't because I work at the church and all of our people are awesome, okay? But, but you might have somebody like that when you go to work tomorrow, somebody that you interact with, that you have a connection with. And so if you go to work tomorrow and that person shows up, and if you have the mindset beginning when you walk in the door, what can I do today to bless them? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. The relationship's going to change. The relationship's going to change at first because that person's going to think, well, this is pretty awesome. Like, look what I'm getting from this. They're going to look at this as like a bonus for them because, man, I've got that person right where they want me because now they want to see what they can do to bless me. It's going to start there. But when you are acting in a pure heart in God's definition of love, what will end up happening is that will begin to rub off on that person. And here's what will eventually take place is that that person's relationship with you their appreciation for you is going to change dramatically. By the way, that's how we change relationships from the inside out. It happens in our homes. It happens in the workplace. It happens in the classroom. It happens in our neighborhood. When you talk about this idea, love does not demand its own way. And then we take the next step. Love is not irritable. Now, when you look in the New King James Version, it tells us this, is that love is not provoked. Look what it says in James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. It says this, To understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, 
slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Now, I want to do this. I want to read that again. And I want to read that again for me. Because we need to be reminded of this very truth every single moment of the day. Listen to these words again. And and as I read these words, do me a favor. Like, assess who you are in response to this. James chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Here's what this passage is basically saying. If you want to love people in the way God wants you to love people, if you're going to love people the way God desires for you to love others, here's the deal. Don't be a time bomb. If you're taking notes, write that one down. Don't be a time bomb. How many of you ever watched like a, a movie or television program and like it's inevitable like in all like the Mission Impossible or, or you know, SWATs or whatever TV shows you're watching that whenever there's a bomb threat, whenever there's a bomb in a building or a bomb in a situation, man, it always is this thing where, the, you know, the heroes show up and that bomb is there and they've got that little clock that's, that's timing down, right? The time is just running off that clock and it's heading towards zero and they're feverishly working to try to get that thing diffused and they're, they're working as hard as they possibly can. And then you know what always happens? It always happens that with about four seconds or three seconds left on that clock, they clip the right wire, right? And all of a sudden the bomb, the timer stops and the bomb doesn't go off. You know what I've never figured out? Bomb makers should use the exact same color of wire for all the wires, and then the bombs would always go off, right? Do I clip the red one or the green one? I mean, it's always the same thing. But that idea of that bomb that is just coming down to literally to the last second before it explodes, some of us walk through life like that. Some of us walk through life like a time bomb. And people around us are afraid because they're afraid they might clip the wrong wire, so to speak in their connection to, in their communication with, in their relationship with us. And God says that does not produce the kind of righteousness that God desires. That is not what we must do and how we are to live and how we're to respond to others and how we're to walk through life. The Bible says this, that we should not be, and love should not be easily provoked. That means this, that when conflict arises, which it always will, Here's what you do. Here's your response. Here's how you do it in God's definition of love. Number one, quick to listen. And very few of us are quick to listen. The way we respond usually in conversations and usually in conflict is this, is we can't wait to get the next word in. Because we want to make sure we get the last word, but we also want to make sure we get the first and the middle and the last word. We want to make sure that we are the ones being heard. Even when we're being wronged, it's like, man, this is, I want to make sure you hear what I've got to say. I can't believe you did that. When I told you, I mean, we just run through that. The Bible says this, be quick to listen. That means close the mouth and hear. Allow the other person to talk. Slow to speak. And what that means, it doesn't mean like the idea, because you think about it, they could be the exact same thing, right? Quick to listen, slow to speak could be the exact same thing. That is not what it's saying here. It's saying be quick to listen like I want to hear from you in this relationship. But secondly, slow to speak, which means this. Your words are measured. That you don't just immediately speak as soon as they're done talking and start, you know, flowing out with the words that are going through your brain. That you actually stop 
And when I say your words are measured, it means this. Think about what you're about to say. And if we would just simply do that, if we would just actually take that on as something that we're going to do in every situation, every conflict, and in every argument, in every uh, situation where things are not going well, if we would actually sit back and before we speak, before we launch into a conversation, before we launch into a tirade, that we actually sit back and think about what I'm about to say. And when we're thinking about what we're about to say, there ought to be like two or three components of that. Number one, is it kind, right? Number two, is it going to produce the results that I'm looking for? Now, if your heart is like the pure heart, like you're actually looking for the right things, that's a good question to ask. And the third is, how is this person going to take that? Again, last week my wife was sitting right here. You'll notice she moved. (laughs) She's not here today. She's sitting way over there because she thinks I won't come over and talk to her. She's wrong. (laughs) So, so... I can guarantee you. Come on, come on with me, will you? Come on, come on over here. Because she's way over here. She thought she was getting off, uh, you know, and it's dark over here. She's in the dark. She's hiding. Because she said, nobody's going to see me over here. I'm on a stage. I can see everybody up there. So, so Sherry's over here. And I can guarantee, 26 years of marriage, right, there's been lots of times where in a moment of conflict, in a moment of, of disagreement, where I have responded and I've said something, and I didn't think about what I was saying, and I didn't really process what, how it was going to be sound and how it was going to be perceived, and so I just spoke it. I just said it, and I paid for it for the rest of the week. Am I right about that? No. Yeah, no, no, yeah. <laughs> Next week, she's going to a different church. She's actually... Yeah, she's going to be blessed somewhere else. But yeah, and so there have been moments like that. And, I, and, and listen, and there might have been one or two where she's done that to me in our 26 years of marriage. But here's what happens. If we will actually take the time that before we respond in the middle of conflict to actually think, like, is this kind? Is it going to produce the results I'm looking for? How is the other person going to perceive, take that statement? If we think about that before the words roll off of our lips, here's what will happen. Relationships change. Dynamics change. The conflicts begin to resolve a lot quicker and a lot kinder. They actually come to be in a situation where you actually walk away from the inevitable moment of conflict. You'll walk away from it, listen to me, better. And as Christians, we all know conflict comes. But as Christians, our goal, our our hope should be that in every conflict, that we walk away from that conflict, especially in a marriage relationship that we walk away from it made better because of it, because we handled it correctly. I'm telling you, it was nice to see you here. God bless you. (laughs) Enjoy that church next week. Yeah. So the idea is we are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Anger will never produce the result you're looking for. When you guys, have you ever guys ever, have you ever fought... No. <laughs> she's over here. Yeah. In fact, she's got one for you this afternoon. She actually, yeah, because you just lied in church. So whenever you respond in the middle of conflict, coming out of a conflict, whenever you respond in anger, I promise you this, you will ever, never actually win an argument. Now, listen, I know our goal is not to win an argument, but here's the problem. 
when we respond in anger, yes, we're not winning that argument, but that argument's not important. What I'm talking about is this, is that we will just simply never win. Relationships begin to erode. What we, what God desires to be something that is strengthened every single day will become weaker and weaker and weaker. Why? Because anger does not produce the kind of righteousness that God intends. So love does not demand its own way. Love is not easily provoked. It's not irritable. It doesn't find its situation where, uh, you know, it's always an issue of anger and, and conflict. Let's keep reading. It keeps no record of being wronged. I got to go back over here to Sherry. I, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, well, I'm going to leave her alone so she can practice that is not provoked thing. Okay, so <laughs> keeps no record of being wrong. This one's easy. Basically, it's this. Love does not hold on to past hurts to be able to use them at the first sign of trouble. Love doesn't hang on to what was so that we can use it the next time things don't go our way. Because when you do that, here's what you're doing. Listen to me. When you keep a record of being wronged, when you keep that record of past hurts, when you, you know, kind of mentally take note of all the things that another person has done to you that have hurt you, when you keep that locked away inside your brain, here's what you're really doing. And in our culture today, we talk a lot about this. Here's what we're doing. We are building a wall. And it's not a wall about immigration. It's a wall about destruction of relationship. Because when you are hiding those things away in your brain, even if you don't verbalize it, what you're doing is this, is you are creating a barrier between you and the other person. Because what you're doing is you're constantly rehearsing, constantly remembering, constantly walking through what they did to you before. And that is the exact opposite of the word forgiveness. Remember Jesus said when asked the question, how many times should I forgive? He said, not seven, but 70 times seven, right? That's 490. Jesus was not speaking specifically. He was speaking, you know, in somewhat of a, a, in a hyperbolic way. He was kind of just making a statement, like hypothetical. Here's the deal. Yeah, like, like, like 490 times, like over and over and over again. I can guarantee you if someone got to 489, Jesus is not sitting there saying, yeah, he's only got one more to go. Then he can have at it. I mean, that's not what Jesus is thinking. So we have to let go of the past. We have to take that stuff of yesterday and leave it in yesterday. When we are constantly focusing on what happened before, I can promise you this, you will never actually move forward and become better. So love does not keep records of being wronged. It doesn't keep that list. Aren't you glad Christ doesn't do that with us? Aren't you glad that Christ isn't sitting up there and he's got this big book and he's like, hey, what? Jonathan, watch this. Let me tell you, Jonathan, I'm going to write that down. That's number 712 for this week. I'm going to write that down right there. And then the next time I mess up, you know, so he can pull that out and say, Jonathan, you've messed up 712 times since last week. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, that if we confess our sins, that he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We love that verse, don't we? Because that's the picture of what God will do for us. He will take all the things that we've done wrong and he will wipe the slate clean. And I will tell you today, according to God's definition of love, that's exactly what you need to do with your relationships too. That you need to recognize that when the other person confesses and asks and seeks forgiveness, that you are like God. And here's what you do. 
you forgive and you wipe it clean. You throw it into the ocean. Walk away from it. Because I promise you, not only will it destroy your relationship, it will destroy you when all you're doing is remembering everything that has been done wrong to you in the past. Let it go. Next thing, love. Love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. It does not rejoice about injustice, but it rejoices whenever the truth wins out. In the New King James, it says, does not rejoice in iniquity. In other words, it basically says this, love does not find joy when someone else fails. Love does not find joy when a brother falls. Love does not find joy when someone that is your quote-unquote enemy that person at work that you don't get along with, that person in the neighborhood that parks too many cars out on the street and blocks your driveway, that person who happened to take your seat this morning when you came into church. It's like, I've been here, I've been sitting in this seat for 12 years, look at them sitting in my seat. And then you sit back when that person messes up and you're like, yes, I'm glad they fell. Man, I'm glad they messed up. Man, I'm glad we don't have to deal with them anymore. Love does not rejoice when a brother falls. In fact, the Holman New Testament commentary says this, sin destroys people's lives. So to rejoice in their sin is to rejoice in their destruction. To rejoice in the fall or the destruction of another is the exact opposite of loving your neighbors yourself. In other words, when someone falls, when a brother or sister falls, when a friend falls, when someone that you don't really care much about falls, here's your response. It's not, yes, it's grieving. It's heartbroken. We've seen it all the time, many times as pastors, big name pastors, so to speak, when they've fallen, when they've fallen into sin. And I've actually, I've actually sat in a meeting with some other pastors, I will not name who they are, but I've sat in a room with other pastors when they've been talking about another major name pastor of a large church that had fallen, fallen into sin and, and had, had, had to be removed from the office of the pastor. And they were sitting there and they were actually laughing about it and giddy about it. And that broke my heart because here's what we do not do. We do not rejoice when a fellow brother or sister in Christ falls. We grieve in our hearts and we seek to do whatever we can to restore. When this passage says, does not rejoice about injustice, but then it goes on to say, rejoices whenever the truth wins out. The godly heart rejoices when a failure is turned into a victory. The godly heart rejoices when someone who has fallen turns it around and comes back. That's what love really is. That's the picture, the definition of love. Restoration. Because there's not a person in this room who has not needed that at some point. Of understanding that we don't rejoice when someone messes up. We jump in to see what we can do to help. Passage goes on to say, love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. That statement, love never gives up. The New King James says this, love bears all things. The Greek word there is stego, which is literally the idea of building a roof over something. 
of putting a roof over something in order to protect it. That's the idea that's given there when it says that it bears all things, that love never gives up. It's a picture that when we love someone, when we care about someone, and we love them according to God's definition of love, that we will do whatever is needed to cover, to protect that person from whatever might come to destroy them. There are some people in this room here that have a, have a car that you'd love a lot. I mean, it's a car maybe you've spent like your entire life like saving up the money to, to buy. Maybe it's a car that you bought and you've restored it. It's like an old, I don't know, what's a cool car? Like a, you're, you're, you're older. What, what's a cool car? I'm sorry, you, you listen, let me be honest. You, I love you, but you're older. So, so, so what's a cool car from back in the 50s? Uh, 60, 62 Chevy. 62 Chevy Corvette? Awesome. Okay, so maybe you've got a 62 Chevy Corvette and you've restored that thing and you've spent hours and hours and hours to get that exactly right so the value of that thing is like off the charts. And here's what you don't do. You don't leave that thing sitting out in the front driveway. You don't leave it sitting out in the street when cars drive by or snow plows come by and, and push all the snow up on top of that car. You know what you do? You actually go build a garage so you can put it in there. Like you, you build a cover so that thing is protected. That's the idea that's given here. Love bears all things. It never gives up. It builds the cover and protects that which you love. It never loses faith. King James says, believes all things. In other words, looking for the best and believing the best for and in others. Like that when you have a situation with someone, when things aren't going exactly the way that you want them to go, you're not looking at how to put that person down. You're not looking at how to destroy that person. You're not looking at how to, to make that person pay. What you're looking for is how can I make this person better? I want this person to experience all of the best that God has for them. That desire is the picture of love bears all things. It's always, or, or love believes all things. Love is always hopeful. It goes on to say, enduring through every circumstance. In other words, this. Love never quits on the other person. Now listen, you've heard me say it a million times and I'll say it again here. There are times where it is physically dangerous. It is not safe. It is destructive to stay in, in a relationship where there is abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, whatever it might be. Yes, it doesn't say here that love never walks out of that. It doesn't say here that it endures through all of that stuff. No, what it says very clearly endures through every circumstance, but it does not require us to stay where we are being hurt, okay? I just want to make sure I say that very clearly because I know every time someone talks about, man, love never gives up, there's somebody sitting in the room who's going through a time right now where they're scared to go home because of what might happen. God does not expect, desire, or require you as an individual, to be in a relationship where you could be hurt or worse, your children hurt or worse. God does not require that. But love never gives up. We understand that it endures through every circumstance. And then the last statement, verse 13, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. To me, this is like the most powerful statement in this entire passage. All of it's practical, and then it gets to this part where it goes beyond practical. Because here's what it says. These three things will last forever. The New King James, King James says, these things now abide. Here's what it says. Faith, hope, love. Faith, in other words, believing in Christ. 
of recognizing and understanding that nothing can take away our relationship with Christ. When you have called on the name of the Lord, when you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that you believe that he died and that he rose again, and you've said, I believe and I trust you, God, save me today through your son, Jesus. Here's what remains forever. That faith in Christ cannot be taken away. We cannot be plucked out of the hand of God. That's good news. So faith, hope, what, what is hope talking about here? Hope talking about John 14 when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That Jesus made it very clearly that there is something beyond this world in which we live in. And listen, you talk about good news? That's good news. Because this world is messed up. This world is broken. This world hurts. This world is full of division and anger and arguments and pain and suffering and sorrow. And God says, but hope will remain. Why? Because there's a place that's far better than here. And that's what Jesus has prepared for us in heaven. And if you as a person have come to that place where you believed who Jesus is and accepted him as your Lord and Savior, here's the blessed hope that you have. And no one can take it away from you that one day when you leave this earth, you will not be dead. You will live more than you've ever lived before because you'll be in the presence of God. Faith, hope, love. Now this passage written, theologians have argued back and forth of what that means. These three last forever. Let's be honest. These three really don't last forever. The translations here are not very good when it comes to this idea, this concept of these three will last forever because faith will not last forever. Now, you're sitting there saying, wait a minute, that's totally opposite of what he just said. No, faith will not last forever. You know why? Because the moment that you take your last breath here, your faith becomes sight. Never again will you have to believe in something you've not seen. Because when you die, believing in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will step into the presence of God and you will see him face to face for all of eternity. Faith will end because you'll see it. Amen. Hope doesn't last forever. Why? Because I have that blessed hope of knowing that one day I'll get to heaven. But one day when I get to heaven, I won't have to hope for that ever again. Because I'll be there. I will be there in my own, well, not my own flesh and blood. I'll be in somebody else's, you know, whatever God's created. I don't know what we're going to look like. We will not be floating around on clouds playing harps. I'm telling you that. But I don't know what we'll look like. But hey, hope is over because we're there. So faith and hope will not abide forever. They will not last forever. But here's the cool thing. Love will. Because the moment that we step into the presence of God, here's what it is. It's like a dad or a mom who's had a child who's been away at war, serving maybe in Afghanistan or Iraq. And they've been over there for you know, months and months and months, maybe not even hearing from that child, not even knowing if they're okay. And then we've all seen the videos, those heart-wrenching videos, when a child maybe is sitting there playing in their kindergarten classroom, and all of a sudden that dad walks in behind and taps him on the shoulder, and that kid breaks into tears and wraps his arm around his daddy because his daddy's home. That's what'll happen. Love will last forever because when we step into the presence of God, our daddy's going to be there. And our daddy is going to wrap his arms around us and he's going to say, welcome home, child. What a beautiful picture 
of love. But until then, until that moment, don't buy into the world's view of love. Don't look at love as what I can get. Look at love as what I can give. Don't look at how you can destroy. Look at how you can build up. Don't look at how you can keep records so that you can pull it out whenever you need to to get that person back. Look at what you can do to encourage that person even when they're not acting the way that they should. When we love like that, we love like Christ. And that should be our ultimate goal. I love the way the New King James ends this passage. The NIV says it the same. Love never fails. Let's love like that. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the picture of how we're to live and how we're to act and how we're to serve. God, we live in a world that tells us everything differently. But God, I, I'm so grateful that in your word today we've seen that you've given us just as practical a list that we could ever hope for on how we're to actually treat each other. So God, I just pray now that what we'll do is actually we'll respond. That we'll do that. That we'll live that way. We'll act that way. We'll treat others that way. We will love that way. So that we can love like you. And we know you being the ultimate example of love, that you gave your own son, Jesus, to die, to pay the ultimate price so that we could be made right with you, so that we would have a pathway, a door by which we can enter into the family of God. God, help us to use that as our model of how to love. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, in a moment we're going to stand and sing together. Our team is going to be here at the front. And I want to do something just a little bit different. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us here today. You know, at Thomas Road Baptist Church, since our very beginning, back in 1956, we've been about one thing and one thing only. And that is to bring the message of hope that comes through Jesus Christ to the world. And today, my friends, we recognize we live in a world that's messed up. We live in a world that's full of division and conflict and pain and sorrow. But Jesus came to this world not to bring division and sorrow, but to bring joy, to bring peace, to bring hope. And today, that's the message that we want to share with you. And if you're watching this and you've never had the opportunity of, of connecting with him at that level, of understanding what it is that Jesus came to do, then I encourage you and I want to let you know the greatest news you'll ever hear. And that's this, God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. In fact, he gave his only son, Jesus, to come to this earth to die on the cross, to pay for your sins and for my sins, to do for us what we never could do for ourselves. What an amazing gift that really is. God loves you. Christ died for you. But three days later, he rose again. And when he came out of that grave, he gives us victory over sin, over Satan, over the grave. He gives us the hope for eternity. But according to God's word, it's very clear. What we must do is believe. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We must believe that He died and that He rose again. And if we do that, according to Romans 10, 13, anyone, that means you, it means me, it means every person that has ever lived, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I encourage you today to recognize that hope that comes through Jesus. And if you've never trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, do so today believing that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said that he did, calling on his name 
and it'll change everything. That is the message that we share. It's a message that we want to take to the entire world. And today I would encourage you to connect with us, maybe even financially through a gift that you can help us to take this message around the world. I encourage you today to stand with us as we stand with truth, as we stand with hope to let the world know God loves. Thank you.